Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this episode, my guest is Timon Singh. This is an unusual interview for me, because although Timon has written two books, he doesn't consider himself a writer. But he had an idea so strong that he's now been published twice. Those books are Born to be Bad and Born to be Bad Part 2, a selection of interviews with some of Hollywood's finest actors who have been immortalised as the most iconic villains in movie history. His interviews offer a fascinating insight into how these types of roles can affect an actor's career and include the kind of behind-the-scenes anecdotes that rarely get discussed. This interview was recorded in mid-August 2021, a few weeks after Timon's second book had been published in the UK. Okay, so good evening and uh, welcome, Timon. Thank you for joining me. Uh, hey, Tom. How's hello. it going, buddy? It's going very well. First question, as always, what are we drinking? We are drinking Tam Tamnavulin. Tamnavulin. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. Tamnavulin. The Speyside Single Malt Scotch Whiskey that is double cast and has been finished in sherry casks. Oh, very nice. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Oh, cheers. 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 So you're a long-time Scotch drinker? That's me. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is a thing. I only really got into whiskey, I mm. think, when I turned 30. Uh-huh. So I'm 37 now. And before that, I, I never liked whiskey. Oh. You know, when all my peers were drinking Jack Daniels and Coke, I was like, no, no. And then it was, I think I turned 30. It was just in a bar with a friend who really is into whiskey. And started introducing me to like the differences between PT single malt and a sweet bourbon. And, you know, your listeners might be going, well, this is very obvious stuff. I knew (laughs) nothing about whiskey. And now I'm not saying I'm an expert, but it is definitely my tipple of choice now in the evenings. And when you've got a movie on, I'll just sit there with a nice dram of single malt or a, actually, what am I saying? I'll I'll drink a blend. I'm not pretentious. I'll drink whatever's (laughs) going. Nice. Whatever was on offer in Sainsbury's that day. <laughs> and so this is a reward drink. This is very much an end of the day. This isn't, you're not a Hunter S. Thompson smoking and drinking as you're hitting the keys. I don't think I have Hunter S. Thompson stamina. I would be slumped <laughs> over a keyboard. It is definitely an end of the day thing. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not a functioning alcoholic. I would just yeah. be a full-blown alcoholic. Okay. okay. And uh, where do I find you right now? Is this your writing space? Or where are we? You find me in my kitchen, sat at the kitchen table. I don't actually have a writing space. This table used to be in the living room. And I wrote my first book in a mixture of places around the house in the spare room that's now my wife's office. I did a whole bunch of interviews for my book and writing up there. And then when she took it over for work, I I got kicked out. So it was wherever this dining table was, (laughs) I would find myself. So either in front of the window in the living room and now it's in the kitchen. So this is where I mostly did my second book. Okay. And how is it? Because you know, kitchen's very much the, the central hub of a house. And you have two not small dogs. The kitchen distraction isn't as big as you would think. I've got music going on in the background anyway, or a movie on in the background, and the yeah. dogs just wander in and often just scooch under the table and nap. Okay. If anything, it's their snoring that's a distraction. <laughs> well, that's all right. Okay. That, that's certainly livable. And as you mentioned that, you know, you've written two books now, and they're both on the theme of movie villains, Born to be Bad and Born to be Bad Part 2. So imaginative, the follow-up <laughs> title. 
I know, but beautiful. Uh, but the thing is, it, it is nice. It is uh, a part two. And when you originally came up with the idea, did you ever think it was going to be more than one book? Or, or how did it come up to, that this should be a book? I didn't even think it would end up being a book, knowing my ability to never finish things um, half the time. But it came about, I was at the Cube, Bristol's little microplex, and they were doing an anniversary screening of Robocop. Mm -hmm. And it was packed out. Everyone was talking along with the dialogue. And I'd had a few drinks. And it suddenly occurred to me that all the actors playing the bad guys looked like they were having a much more fun time than Peter Weller, who plays Robocop and who's very vocal about what a miserable time he had playing it. Yes. And that they were all actors that any Hollywood executive would never have cast as villains in their right mind to be in an action film. You've got Ronnie Cox, you've got Kurtwood Smith, you've got Paul McCrane from Rent and Ray Wise and all these actors that now post-Robocop have played a host of villains, but before then, I don't think they really had. So after the film, I was cycling home, I was a bit drunk, and I was like, you know, all these actors that play bad guys, they clearly have more fun than the actors playing the heroes. What is it like for these actors once the credits roll and they've been in a film like this? Does it lead to more jobs? Are they typecast as villains for the rest of their lives? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What is it like making these massive films and you're not the hero and generally not as regarded as, you know, your Arnold Schwarzenegger's, your Sylvester mm. Sloan's or your Bruce Willis. And uh, the next morning, I still thought it was a decent idea. Wrote down a short list of actors that I would love to interview for the book and started chasing. And so at this point, you've never written a book before. Nope. Had you ever interviewed any actors or anything, anyone at this level? It all depends what you mean by this level. So here in Bristol, I run a little film club called the Bristol Bad Film Club, and we show lots of cult and genre films. And over the years, I have often reached out to directors and actors about their experiences in these films. And it's good to have an interview on the website that people that see the film and enjoy it, they can find out a bit more information. Or sometimes we get a video clip and we show up for after the film. Um, a few years back, we had done a screening of Street Fighter, the 1994 film adaptation of the infamous video game. And I reached out to Stephen E. D'Souza, who had written and directed it, and had also written small films like Commando and The Running Man and Die Hard. And I just I tracked down a PA through an article, and then the article gave me his email address. So I just reached out and I was like, I'm just doing a thing for our website. Here are 10 questions. If you've got five minutes, would you mind answering them? And a few days later, he sent back a link to a video file where he was sat with a Street Fighter poster behind him. And he was like, thank you very much for your questions. I will now answer them. And in this lovely edited presentation, he just went through and answered all my questions. And it was incredible. And I was like, this guy, is lovely. He's really friendly. If I ever do something again, maybe I'll reach out to him. And it was halfway through writing my first book. I was like, I need someone to write a foreword for this. Someone who's got some experience directing or writing villains. Someone like Stephen E. D'Souza, who wrote Die Hard in Commando. Hang on, I have Stephen E. D'Souza's <laughs> email address. And it was just one of those, 
eureka moments yeah. reached out to him and he was like absolutely of course i would love to do that and and now several years later i've actually met up with Stephen a couple of times at various film festivals i've been around to his house wow yeah memorabilia everywhere he's got commando action figures in that place oh, wow. and yeah it, it, it's great so that was my initial experience in interviewing people it was stuff for the bad film club and then at uni i'd written for the university newspaper doing the film section so i've had to do the odd local premiere and i've done a few things for den of geek but yeah nothing really major so this was like my first proper job yeah interviewing people i guess that did give you the um the realization that these are just human beings and Mm. that they are approachable and they are very proud of the work that they've done where for the most part for the most (laughs) most part (laughs) But and we will get on to that. But there's, yeah, I think for a lot of lay people, you know, who've just been fans of things, when they've never approached anyone, it's how do you make that first approach? It just seems so imposing and mm. so intimidating. But I guess when you've had a success and a unintended level of success, I guess it, it does help embolden you in approaching other people. Did you feel... Well- that you were going to get success when you started writing your list? No, I was very doubtful I would actually get anyone. And I'm just a guy living in Bristol. I don't know any agents or managers in LA. So I had my short list. And I, the way I started out was just going to Google and I was like, which of these actors has a personal website? And that was it. And one of them, I think it was Vernon Wells, runs like a wolf conservation charity. Okay. And so Vernon Wells, for any of your listeners who aren't familiar with him, he plays Where's the Big Henchman in Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. He's Bennett in Commando. He's Mr. Igor in Inner Space. And he's played like a host of villains through the years and stuff like the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Mm. And he's a constantly working actor. And lo and behold, it just had his personal email address there. And so I emailed him. It's just like I'm writing my first book, all about actors who've played iconic villains, uh, their careers afterwards. Can I interview you? And he said yes. And that was my first interview. And once that was in the bag, that opened up more doors. And I shelled out for an IMDb Pro account because that has actors, publicists, agents, managers. And then it was just like a war of attrition to get past these publicist agents and managers who it is their job to keep people like me away from their clients. Unless they're getting paid, they have no interest in like letting someone like me talk to their clients. And I wasn't paying anyone because I couldn't afford to. I owe a big thanks to all the, the managers and publicists who are like, actually, this is something my client would actually enjoy talking about. I'm going to let this one slip through the cracks. So if I had any advice for people who wanted to write a book that involved interviewing famous people, I'd go, if you can, ask them direct, either via personal website or if they've got DMs open on social media, try that approach. If not, publicists or managers, not agents. Agents always want a percentage. Managers generally care about their clients and will know whether it's something they'd be up for. Uh, publicists to a slightly lesser extent, but also the money is also a concern for them. Agents should be your last port of call. Yeah. And 
when approaching these these actors and uh, stunt people it, it clearly comes across in your books how well researched you went in so what was your approach to researching these people was it just imdb and finding like little trivia nuggets did you have any books because i know you you're such a film fan, you have a lot of compendiums on mm. how films are made. Did you find any particular books that were really good for researching uh, the people you interviewed? There were a few things that inspired me. So there's this podcast called I Was There Too by Matt Gawley, where he interviewed bit part actors in famous films like The Woman with the Pram in The Untouchables and actors that played Ewoks in Star Wars. Yeah. Actors that were there too, but aren't the big ones. And I liked that kind of friendliness of interviews and how he's, you know, just asking them to talk about their experiences and looking for anecdotes. And then the other inspiration was this book called Life of Action. It's written by Mike Fury. And it's very much, he has tracked down stuntmen or action stars or stunt coordinators just talk about their life working in an action environment, putting in their training stunt coordination. And that is also an interview format book. So I wanted to take the friendliness of Matt Gawley's podcast with the writing style of Mike, which is kind of do it in an interview way. So I am quite a genre film fan, so I did have that working knowledge, but I wanted to start off the interview with a bit of background about who they were and how they got into film because everyone has a different story and then I knew there were various titles I would want to hit upon the way and generally wrap it up as a kind of a, a net result was appearing in these films a good thing or a bad thing for your career were you stereotyped have you ever worked again after appearing in these films and is playing villains more fun than playing the heroes so once I had that kind of general layout, it was just doing a bit of research on each title, like knowing how they got into these films so you could slightly steer the conversation, especially with actors who had been in older films and their memories might not be what they used to be. Yeah. yeah and uh, it's interesting your phrasing there, sort of slightly steer the conversation, because I think it definitely comes across in some of the interviews Sometimes they just want the platform to speak and they have things to say. Yes. How was that challenge to keep them on track? And did you find there were some almost had an agenda? Is that fair to say when they were talking to you? I think some often wanted to kind of get their side of the story because often when you read about these films, it's always the director and the star and also the, the positives of being in such a big film. So in my new book, I interviewed Robert Patrick, mm. who played the T-1000. And every time they're doing a re-release of the T-1000, there's Robert Patrick talking you know, about how amazing it is and what a great experience it is. And when I was interviewing him, I was just kind of like, we've talked about the T-1000. But I was like, was there a point when this role was like an albatross around your neck? Because I remember you played the role again for a universal theme park. You showed up in a Wayne's World sequel as the T-1000. And then you had a little cameo in Last Action Hero as the T-1000. Was there a point when you were just like, I'm going to be the T-1000 for the rest of my life? And he was like, yes, that was a genuine concern that I've been in a great big film like this. And this is all it's going to be. I'm just going to be reprising this role, cameoing as myself. And he talked that after 
Terminator 2, there was a fallow period where he made, and I, I described it as a lot of VHS schlock, and he agreed. And it wasn't until he bumped into Peter Berg, director Peter Berg, yeah. and he had just been cast in James Mangold's Copland. And through Peter Berg, he managed to get a role in Copland, which essentially gave his career a second jump start, mm. playing these kind of shifty, older, gangster, corrupt cops. And then he's also just done a host of things, the X-Files, yeah. and he's been in the new Perry Mason series. Okay. And I think he's just finished doing an HBO uh, series of Peacemaker, the character from the Suicide Squad. So he's constantly working now. But when I spoke to him, he was like, I'm so glad you're asking me about all these roles I did, like Double Dragon, because everyone that wants to talk to me, 80% it's Terminator 2, and the other 20% just want to talk about the (laughs) X-Files. So I think for some of them, they're kind of like, oh, here comes someone who wants to talk to me about these roles again. But you have to be aware that lots of these actors did other things and they really do want to talk about it because sometimes these big films that they're in just cast a very long shadow over their career. So you've got to be very sympathetic to how that can be an albatross uh, Mm. to them. And so are they often quite defensive when you first start talking to them? I don't think so. There was one actor, the British thespian, David Warner. Yes. From the Omen and Time Bandits and Time After Time and Tron and Titanic. And at first he was like, I don't understand why you want to talk to me because you're writing a book about villains and I haven't played that many villains. I said, what are you talking about? You've literally played evil in Time Bandits. And I just started listing off all these roles that whenever I thought of him, I was like, I think of David Warner and I think about you torturing a strung up Patrick Stewart in Star Trek The Next Generation and a strung up Leonardo DiCaprio in uh, Titanic. And he was like, there was a pause and he was like, Okay, no, maybe you're right. Maybe I have played a few <laughs> bad guys. But someone like David Warner, who's been in so a hundred films, Easy. to him, he's probably, I haven't played that many bad guys, but some of his most iconic roles, yeah. I would argue, except maybe The Omen, where he's just a, a reporter. I, I think of him as quite you know, a villainous persona. But to him, he, he was very amused by the whole thing. Have you played that many bad guys? Maybe. <laughs> now, that's really cool. And when you're doing your interview so you've done a mix you've actually done some in person as well as over the the phone and the internet i did very few in person a few yeah. with british actors or people that i nabbed at various conventions yeah but because often i needed to talk to them for like over an hour mm. doing it via phone was the best way and so i would meet a few people at comic book conventions like sarah douglas from superman 2 I'd be like, hi, I'm writing this book. Would you be up for an interview at some point in the future? And she just gave me her telephone number. And I was like, you don't know who I am. You should not just be giving me your telephone number. And I felt very concerned for her. I was like, don't just give me your telephone number. Ask me more questions about who I am. If I have any right to. But she, she was lovely. She was great. I interviewed Andrew Robinson, who played the Scorpio killer in Dirty Harry at a, a convention, because at the convention, he's just known for being Garrick from Deep Space Nine. And there was a little bit of a lull in Star Trek fans trying to get his autograph. So I just sat with him for an hour and I was like, Can we just talk about Dirty Harry and Hellraiser and appearing in Cobra. 
as well as Star Trek Deep Space Nine, because I'm a big Star Trek fan and I would love to talk to you about Star Trek. But he was, yeah, he was great to talk to. He's playing the uh, Scorpio killer in Dirty Harry. That was a role where he was so effective that casting directors didn't want to meet him because they were terrified by the thought wow. of meeting someone that sinister. Wow. So he said he went for an interview at a studio. The casting director's assistant came out, just told him to go away because the casting director was too scared to meet him. Wow. And he was like, that, and that was my career for a good few years. Jeez. He was so good at that role. Yeah. People seemingly unfamiliar with the concept of acting were too terrified to meet him. And when you're interviewing over telephone, I, I guess you've got a lot of people abroad, a lot of people in the States. So the time zone factor. Oh, God, and, the time zone factor. And you had a, a full-time day job whilst doing mm-hmm. book one. How was that balancing act of arranging interviews around your job at times that were convenient for the States? I would be very honest with you and tell you that when I was writing my first book, my then boss was very generous. He clearly knew I was organizing interviews and using the meeting room for not work-related meetings at the time. It, it was tricky. I mean, in LA, uh, 9 a.m. is 5 p.m. our time. Mm. So I would try and do things first thing or when I you know, got back from home. Otherwise, staying up very late to do interviews. And the worst thing is now is post-pandemic, now we're all very familiar with Zoom. Back then, Zoom wasn't really a thing. It was Skype. I was using a lot of Skype, using a lot of credit on Skype to do calls to the US. Now, oh God, I could just do it on Zoom. It would be so much easier. Yeah, some of the dodgy phone lines I had to deal with. It was hard, man. It was really hard trying to organize it. And there was, I think for the first book, I did like close to 25 to 30 interviews. And I did it fairly quickly over a quite a short period of time compared to the second book. That took quite a bit longer. Yeah, it was exhausting. What years did you start your interviews? What years did I start my interviews? I think I came up with the idea for the first book in April 2017. I think it was all done and written by December 2017. And then it came out six, seven months later. So... That was quite a fast turnaround compared to the second one that I think took close to two years to write because I was really chasing some people and desperate to get them. And then I submitted it in April 2020 and it didn't come out till July 2021. I I, I can't think of pandemic. What, What delayed that, I wonder? You say that. I was like, what is delaying this? Mm. All you've got to do is get someone to proof it and design it your end and put it out. It shouldn't be that hard. And I was like, come on, let's try and get it out for Christmas 2020. And it it just took so long. I don't know if they had a large backlog of books. Mm. I don't know if it was COVID related, but it did seem an exhaustive amount of time. And with your sort of going from the interviews uh, to writing the book, how did you ed- did you edit as you go? So did you transcribe the full interviews and then go, I need to trim this back? Or were you listening to bits and go, actually, I'm not even going to type that bit up? I transcribed the whole interview. Mm. And then essentially I would then copy it and then I would just hack at it 
until it was like a nice tight interview because you would start off a thing by going so tell me how you got started in acting and they would tell you a half an hour long story and you're like this just needs to be a paragraph but you're like oh please just tell me more about your time in acting school and all the acting exercises you, you want to do. I'm, I'm very aware of who the audience is for my book and it's a very niche book but it is action and genre film fans and they don't really care about the breathing exercises that you did they want to know what it's like to be on set with Sylvester Stallone or something like that. Yeah. So it is all about a short story of how they got into acting in the first place and then concentrating on the meat of the story to try and mm. just make it flow better and interesting to read because you'll read back the, the transcription of the interview and you're like, I don't think I have anything here that's vaguely interesting. And you always do. It's like a sculpture. It's just a big block of marble and yeah. you've just got to chip away at it and smooth off the edges and get rid of all the ums and errs while they stumble around to kind of answer the question that you asked five minutes ago. So that, that is the challenge of writing a book that is predominantly interviews. So when you're writing it and crafting it and you know, sort of chiseling it down and refining it, how did you pace out the book? Did you look to make each interview of a similar length? Did you have an overall word count in mind or was it just I want this number of interviews and I want them to all flow. Basically that it yeah. was, I know what the odd structure of each interview will be. And I know how I want to do it in the book. It's just not got to be a slog reading yeah. each interview. There's got to be stuff of interest in there. It's kind of got to be funny depending on the actor. Let me tell you, mm. Stephen Burkhoff is not a barrel of laughs. And yeah, just make it flow and just make it interesting and, and, and stick to what your book is about. And it is playing bad guys. Some of them might want to go off on tangents and talk about other things, but you've just got to keep it focused on why you've written this book in the first place. Did you ever get like a, a moment of self-doubt, of like a crisis point where you thought the entire project was unworkable and pointless and terrible? Did you ever get a point of why should I complete this? Because you said right at the beginning how you struggle to complete things. There have been times when I've come up with a great idea for something and then in the cold light of day or 72 hours later, you're like, no, that's a terrible idea. What are you talking about? But with this book, the idea that it was a good idea would not go away mm. for better or for worse. So no, it kept going. And the fact there's something that's quite exciting about chasing agents and kind of going look I really want these actors and I had a few white whales that I couldn't even get for the second book and with the second book I was like look unless I get this actor and this actor I'm not going to bother because otherwise I'm just scraping the bottom of the barrel and I need some big names in there and otherwise I wouldn't be satisfied with buying a follow-up if it didn't have some decent names in there so for the second book there were definite moments where I was like I'm never going to get this person I'm never going to finish. I need at least 20 names. Who haven't I asked that I can ask? And why isn't Michael Ironside returning my phone calls? And why does this actor want an ungodly amount of money? Does he not know that I I'm, I'm, have no money to give him? So there were definite moments where I felt like I was slamming my head against the table. But if you think it's a good idea, 
I, I think you, you'll see it through. If you're convinced it's a good idea, you'll continue going with it. And I definitely thought I would come to this realization, but at no point did I actually go, this is a terrible idea and you should just stop. Certainly with the second book, I guess you've got the legitimacy of, I've already done it once, it was well received. And did that give you a legitimacy in the eyes of the actors that you interviewed for the second? This was your second book in a series. Absolutely. Not so much with the actors, but with their representation. Because there were actors I tried to get for the first book, like Robert Patrick, and their team just went, no. And then once you approach them again and go, I'm actually a published author. Here is my book. Here is a link of it on Amazon. You know, and it's by an actual publisher in America. Please let me talk to your clients. And that does give you some legitimacy. The first time round, you are just putting any sort of legitimacy under your name. Hi. I'm, my name's Timon Singh. I've previously written for Den of Geek six years ago. Actually, I better not put six years ago. And there was that time I did a couple of weeks' work for Cineworld magazine, but I'll just put that in there. Anything to make it look like you are a legitimate, quote-unquote, author or journalist and that letting them speak to their client is not the worst idea they will have made. Yeah, and coming to... you know, approaching people approaching Mm. publishers because it was a u.s publisher that that's published you did you have them in mind as you're writing it or was it you finished the the project and you're like i hope someone picks this up no actually i think a couple of months into it i basically wrote a book proposal to what the book would be what i was aiming it for it to be who i was aiming to interview for it and i had three sample interviews attached i think it was vernon wells sven ole thorson who's been in most arnie films and tells some racy anecdotes and al leon the asian stuntman stunt coordinator who plays a henchman in most 80s action films yeah. like die hard lethal weapon he's there with his long hair yeah. fu manchu mustache so i put my proposal together those three chapters and i sent them out to every film and tv genre publisher i could find and most said no and then i got an acceptance from an american publisher and it was a big american publisher and i was so excited i was showing off the acceptance letter and then i emailed an author whose books i have that had been published by them and i was like hey i've just got this acceptance letter do you have any thoughts about them and he essentially said don't go with them he was like You get so little money. It's been a constant nightmare. They're not great. They treat you awfully. And basically just said no. And then he was like, you should try this publisher. And I think I had reached out to them, but immediately one of the big things was they would would give you double the amount of profits the other one was offering. So I sent them the proposal and they said yes immediately. They were like, absolutely, yeah, we would like to do this. Sounds like a great idea. They're Bear Manor Media. They're based in the US and they do specialize in film and TV books. And I did want to go through a publishing company for that legitimacy's sake. You can self-publish a book and I'm sure the money is probably better if you do, but I didn't know how I would get my book into shops i didn't know how i'd get onto amazon i don't know how waterstones would go about ordering it in i don't know about the barcoding 
or anything like that. So I was like, this is my first book. Let's try and make it something my parents can at least show their friends and it's not something that's stapled together pieces of A4 paper. So I went with them and yeah, they, they did all the getting it out there, the design, the layout, I clashed with them a couple of times on stuff that, and I'm sure they'd be okay with me saying, like the cover, because their kind of format was like, we just go with a photo of one of your interview subjects, photo, time and sing, title name, boom. And I was like, no, that would look terrible. I want people to look at the cover and go, I immediately know what that book is and look at all those familiar characters on the cover that I know from my childhood, the, the bad guys from Superman 2, David Patrick Kelly from The Warriors, Bennett from Commando and actors like that. So I was like, no, I want a hand-drawn 80s style book cover. And I fought them on it and I was like, I'll pay for it. It's like, I know someone who can do it. I'll pay for it. You just put it on the goddamn book. And they were like, uh, photo's better. And I was like, look, I'm just going to get this guy to do it. And when it's done, I will show it to you. And if you still think a photo would be better, we'll go with a photo. And it was done. My friend Ben Turner, who's a Bristol-based illustrator, did it. And he'd done loads of posters for us for the Bristol Bad Film Club. I sent it over to the publisher and they were like, no, you're right. This is much better. We'll go with that. So I think, yeah, arguments with publishers can come down to something as simple as what's it actually going to look like? And I didn't want it to look cheap. I wanted it to look a bit slick and a bit glossy. I wanted people to judge the book by its cover. Yes, absolutely. As it should be. And after that, there must have been such a a joyous pride in getting it published and uh, having that book launch and and getting it out in the world. But how long had it been out that you realised you wanted to write a second one? Probably about a year. Because once you've got a book out, the last thing you immediately think about is, oh, and you know what I want to do? Write another book. Mm. Uh, I don't know how Lee Child does it, knocking out a Jack Reacher <laughs> book one a year. I was like, I'm done. I never want to touch a keyboard again. No one talked to me about writing a book. And I feel like that after I finished this second one. But after the first one came out, I was like, oh, I'm really annoyed I didn't get this actor in it. And I'm annoyed that I didn't get this actor. And I'd be at conventions selling books and people would be going did you manage to get this guy in it? Because I really love him in that thing. And I was like, yeah, I do too. He was working. I couldn't get him. And they're like, oh, oh, oh. So I was like, I've got, I've got to do a follow-up. If only to scratch that itch that at least the second time round, if I don't get them this time round, at least I'll know that I, I couldn't have got them. But yeah. yeah, so I did have a, if I don't get this person, I'm not bothering. But I did get that person. Who were the ones? You were spoilers. So I got Robert Patrick. I got Kim Coates, the actor who most people will know from Sons of Anarchy, but he's in like the last Boy Scout and he's in Waterworld and he's in Open Range. He's great at giving good creep, as he would say. (laughs) And I also got Stephen Lang, who played the bad guy in Avatar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, you know, pretty big name. But there were still actors I couldn't get for the second one. Mainly Clancy Brown, the Kurgan from Highlander. I know he doesn't like talking about that film but he's been in so many iconic Shawshank films. Redemption. He, Shawshank Redemption. He's just been cast in John Wick 4. He yeah. was my white whale and I couldn't get him for love nor money. I, I couldn't get past his people. I was going through like his voice uh, over agent. He's just constantly working. I just couldn't get him. I don't know 
if they were like, he just doesn't do books. But yeah, no, I just couldn't get him. But luckily I got a great lineup for the second one, including Scott Adkins, got A. Ling, I got William Fickner, I got Xander Berkeley from The Walking Dead and Air Force One and Heat and... Yeah, so I I got some great names. Tony Todd, I got Tony Todd, the candy man himself. So I got some great names, but, you know, there's always that kind of the one that got away. Still sticks in your craw. Yeah. I mean, it only got published, was it last month? End of June, Um, early July. I mean, so, but you wrote it over a year ago. Yeah, almost two. Yeah, Yeah. so you're, do you feel you're done now? Or do you feel there's enough of a list that you want to go again? And round out oh, I'm, I'm done. I'm done yeah. on the interviewing movie villains. I think if I there was another one, it'd be scraping the bottom of the barrel and I'd like to do something different. And on the back of my first book, I, I joined, I, I reached out to this producer and writer who were making a documentary about 80s action films. And I was like, hey, I've interviewed most of these people. Do you need a researcher? And they brought me on as a co-writer and producer. And before I knew it, I was getting shipped off to LA to interview all these people in person for a documentary. And I really enjoyed that. So I think going forward, I would love to do more documentary interviewing and stuff like that, because I I really enjoyed going to Sony Studios and hanging out with screenwriters in their rooms and and in their offices and going to to people's houses. And yeah, I mean, it was a stressful, busy two weeks, but man, I loved it. So is this as a journalist interviewer, a a vocation for you that you feel that you're going to continue? Have you got certain projects in mind or that you'd like to do? I had another idea for a different book and it was a book that I've done like six interviews for but I'm not sure it's good enough or the idea is good enough. I, I keep coming back to it. Maybe one day I'll resurrect it in some way or another but I just don't know how to do it where it doesn't seem like a missed opportunity for something else. It would be a, a film book. Should I say? Yeah, no, I can say what the idea was. It was basically writing a book about inf- infamous productions that went disastrously wrong right. and interviewing actors that were there. However, I was like, the reason I wanted actors was obviously a director would defend the production about why it went wrong. And so would the producers and so would maybe the writer. Whereas an actor especially if they're not the star. They're just like, hey, it was a job. I'm more than happy to tell you what went wrong. But the more people I talk to, they're kind of like, you want a more detailed oral history. You want to talk to more people than just one actor. So I've interviewed people like Jason Fleming, who was there for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I've got Lance Guest, who was the lead in Jaws of Revenge. And I've got an interview with Rain Wilson um, about making Sahara the big, Matthew McConaughey, Indiana Jones-esque franchise that never happened. And of course, my good friend Greg Sestero about the making of The Room, a story that's been even turned into a film. But yeah, it's just, is one person's take on what went wrong on a particular film good enough? Do I need all those other people? And also there were productions that I just couldn't get interviews for. There are films that, that I wanted to cover and no one on the cast would talk to me. So I was like, I don't want to do this book if I can't do this film. So that's why it's been shelved. I don't know if I'm going to take it off the shelf yet. With the documentary that you did, you you were talking to other elements of the filmmaking crew, you know, sort of Mm. writers and directors and things like that. Have you reached out to many writers 
because often it's the writer who gets screwed over on a film production. Yeah, I met Graham Yost, who wrote Speed, Hard Rain and Broken Arrow when I was doing the documentary, and he was generous to write the foreword for my yeah. second book. And we've kept in touch. I did an interview with him for my friend's podcast, The Cosmic Shed. It was an anniversary of the um, Apollo 11 moon landings because he was a writer on the HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon. And he worked, I think he actually, he's working on the new... HBO World War II series Masters of the Air because he was part of Band of Brothers as well. So we just bonded when I was in his office about, oh, just let's talk Band of Brothers while the guy's setting up the camera. And then I cracked a couple of jokes about Speed 2 and he laughed. So yeah, the, the talking to writers is always fascinating because there was, I, I talked to Sheldon Latish, who was the writer of Kickboxer. And I was look, politics aside, I have a question for you. Donald Trump has said his favorite film of all time is Kickboxer, but he fast forwards through the dialogue scenes. What do you make of that? Purely as the writer of Kickboxer. And Sheldon, he's like a former Marine. I have no idea about his political leans. I get the feeling he probably lent a little bit more conservative. And he was just like, that's nice. He said, I, I have heard that. And that is, that's nice. That's nice, I guess. It was a very diplomatic thing. I, I don't want to, I guess the cliche question is like, who was the most di- difficult interviewer? And I don't want to go down that road. Who was the most surprisingly generous interview that you just like, wow, there's no filter, there's no diplomacy here? That's two different questions. The one I was surprised at how nice he was is Vernon Wells. Because mm. he always plays crazed people in his films. And he was so lovely and he was just like oh if we ever meet up that'd be great and i did eventually meet up with him in la and gave him a copy of the book and he is so funny so dry typical australian actually he is also someone that just has no filter and a lot of the actors don't either because when i interviewed them they weren't there with a publicist they're like oh i made this film 30 years ago i don't care so basically a lot of these actors had worked with some of the 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 biggest names in Hollywood. And they're like, oh yeah, Arnie's great to work with. He's good fun. He's good fun. If he shows up on set, he's fine. He's always smoking his cigars. But let me tell you who's a complete dick. And they would just go <laughs> off on one. And there was a common name that seemed to crop up in all the, let me tell you who's a dick. And I'm more than happy to say it. Steven Seagal does not come off well in my yeah. book. Alleged yeah. sexual harasser, Steven Seagal. Who would have thought it is not a nice person? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I was like, should you be telling me this? And they were like, I don't care. I, I worked with him 30 years ago. He can dispute yeah. it if he likes, but by all means. Yeah, there you go. Wow. So, you know, I'm going to wrap up with a, a couple of questions just on the general writing aspect of the book. Because sure. it's my belief that uh, writers always grow and develop with every book that they write. And although you've only written two, was there anything that you learned from your first book that was integral to the way that you approached and wrote your second book? I got a different proofreader. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there is, ah, oh, when my first book arrived, I opened it up and I immediately spotted a typo in an image caption and it <laughs> broke my heart, especially when you personally have read the book 20 times yeah. and you've spell checked it a billion times and at least two other people have proofed it. Yeah, I'd got someone to proof it, and they had done a great job. But there was a typo, 
And I spotted a couple of other typos as well. And it's like a punch in between the legs. You're just yeah. like, I can't see. So the second time around, it's, I just proofread the book, doubled the amount of times yeah. and got every grammatically pedantic friend I knew to proofread it or just take a look at it. You can never have enough people just take a look at your book just to look for the most stupidest typos things you become blind to and one actually came up in the design of this book so uh, i'd written the entire manuscript it was all fine it was all proof sent it over to the publishers and 14 months later they get around sending me the final layout and i'm just like looking at all the image captions with a magnifying (laughs) glass yep sign it off and then someone then it comes out and someone says oh i'm reading this great chapter in this you know, book in, in the Rafe Muller section, they'd taken a picture of it. And in the chapter header, it said Ralph Moller and it's Rafe Moller because he's German, R-A-L-F. And I was like, what? What did I, did I write Ralph? Went back to the manuscript, hadn't written Ralph, uh, looked at the designs and the designer had just taken upon himself just to change the chapter to Ralph Moller. And I had not noticed because I'd been so fixated on all the little things. I had not even noticed that the title of the chapter had been changed from Rafe Moller to Ralph Moller. So I immediately just emailed the publisher. I was like, what happened? What's going on? Just stop all printing of the books. I don't know how this happened. Change it now. And let's just say that was a very stressful 48 hours. It's all fixed now and all copies of the book. But I, I was just like, I became so fixated on the small stuff. Literally the biggest thing. <laughs> just a big actor's name is the title of a yeah. chapter i i hadn't even noticed so the more eyes you can put on your work the better because they'll spot something that you've seen a hundred times and it wouldn't even have registered okay and one last question in any kind of writing advice you've heard over the years was there any writing advice that you felt resonated and really helped you in writing either or both of these books Here's this thing, for someone who did a history degree and has written a lot for various publications over the years and worked at a creative agency and copywriting and editorial processes has been a big part of my career, I don't enjoy writing. I find it hard. That is why when I came up with the idea for a book, I was like, oh, just interviews, boom, 80% of the work's done right there. I don't have to come up with ideas. I'm literally just talking to people and I'm writing up their stories. So people, authors that you're going to interview that have written fiction, to me, I can't think of anything harder than looking at that blank page and just coming up with something. I think that's the hardest thing, coming up with an idea. When I came up with this idea for this book, I was so happy. I was like, I've come up with an idea. That's amazing. Then it's like, why didn't I come up with this idea 10 years ago? Ah, oh, this book could have been out 10 years ago. What? And then it was just like the scouring of the internet. This is such an obvious idea. Has no one ever done it before? Someone's clearly done this and probably a lot better. So I'm just Johnny come lately to this idea. But no one had. And I, I would say that's the thing. Just when you have the idea, just, just go for it. Just go for it and keep writing that idea. There's no advice I could give to anyone about writing because everyone's different. People like to write in the morning. People like to write in the evening. People go for a word count or a page count. I would just try and just make something readable because it's just about cutting down that interview into something manageable. So I can't give any advice to 
anyone on how to write simply because everyone's different. And I'm sure my writing method would be a car crash to some of your listeners. Finish the thing. That's always good. Finish it, finish it. And if you can then approach a documentary team that's done a book on the subject to kind of give you work, I'd recommend doing that. <laughs> that that panned out. That, that panned sounds out good. Very well. That, yeah, that sounds brilliant. Okay, that's all I have to ask. Uh, Ty, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And everyone go and buy both these books. They're brilliant. They're fine. They're, <laughs> I, my mum says they're not her thing, but my wife has also not read them. So make of that what you will. Get them in through your local bookshop. Don't, don't give your money to that, that large tax-dodging conglomerate, although it is on Kindle. So the buy it twice. To buy it twice. Yeah. <laughs> I get more money through Kindle, apparently. Okay, excellent. There you go. All right. Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> and that was the real writing process of Tymon Singh. If you'd like to find out more about Tymon, his books and his interviews, you can check out his website, borntobebad.co.uk. You can also find him on Twitter under the handle at Tymon Singh. And this week, I'm going to ask you to recommend this podcast to one person you know personally. Reviews and retweets are great, but nothing beats word of mouth. And if you like this podcast, I bet you know someone who'd like it too. And don't just send them a link. Message them specifically and discuss it. It's almost Christmas, and it'll mean a lot to them to show that you're thinking of them and want them to escape the horrors of the world for an hour to hear a nice chat. In return, if you have something you'd like me to promote, message me on Twitter at TheRealWritingOne or email me at therealwritingprocess at gmail.com. Anyway, that's all for this week. Until next time, my friends, or until the world ends. trusted friend or your sworn ally no it's the harshest mistress of all and life is just a chain a moment spent a thousand hellos and goodbyes maybe like ours can leave out its call I will keep you near until the world ends and you are safe with me 
time.